Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. We have been through an extraordinary year. Last Easter, with our country in lockdown, Easter was so different. Shopping centres deserted, city centre empty, roads, beaches, quiet. It was like the power was suddenly switched off and we stopped. How different it is this Easter. I was up at the junction on Thursday. There were people everywhere through the shopping centre. And I've heard people give me reports about the massive traffic jams on the roads leaving Sydney this weekend. As this year has got underway, I've noticed the pace of life, which has been accelerating very rapidly. It's a bit like we've been in a hibernation and now we are going faster than ever before. I came across this business article which captured the sentiment in its title, Ready, Set, Go! Reinventing the Organisation for Speed in the Post-COVID-19 Era. Are you ready? We live in a world which relishes speed. We have printing companies like Quick Copy and Snap Printing. Courier ads, do you have a need for speed? We deliver faster than humanly possible. Who sends letters by post? We use email. Our internet connections are all based around how fast we can get our info. We get impatient if we have to wait for 30 seconds for something to come across our internet search. You can be walking from one appointment to the next and you're looking at your phone going, why is it taking so long? We glorify speed and multitasking, doing as much as possible in the shortest frame of time. But, I mean, when you think about it, I don't think any of us would be too thrilled if we knew the surgeon who was operating on you was racing through your surgery while checking his email and replying to texts along the way. I played a game of chess with my son, Alexander, the other day. I need time to concentrate on my play. It reminded me of a time many years ago when I was in Chatsworth Shopping Centre and there was a chess pro who had set out a room of chess boards in a square, 24 games. Anyone could sit down at a vacant board and start playing him. I played one. And he would go around playing everyone at once. He was moving with alacrity, he was dazzling, the speed to stay on top and win every game. As 2021 gears up into full pace, anyone here feel that what it takes to keep on top of all the chess boards in play in your day seems to be getting faster and faster and faster? Kevin DeYoung has written a book titled Crazy Busy. He refers to how our world suffers from what he calls and others call hurry sickness. He said, you and I have a problem. Most mornings we drag ourselves out of bed, start the day's routine, hope against hope that we can simply hold our ground. Maybe we can keep the house in only a mild state of disaster. Maybe we can break even on the to-do list. Maybe no one else will get sick. Maybe the inbox won't get any fuller. Maybe we won't fall asleep after lunch. Maybe, just maybe, we can get enough done in the next 18 hours to be back, back to the best, to back the beast of busyness and live to see another day. We wake up most days not trying to serve, just trying to survive. 
I read sickness, hurry sickness, I think, really? But then I find myself experiencing these things, those times when it seems I just don't have a second to spare. As someone said, you know, you've got this sickness when you go to the supermarket and you've got all you want to buy and you look at the checkout lines and you count how many people are in the lines. Who's got the shortest line? And you calibrate how much stuff is in their trolley. Which one is going to get through the fastest? And if the sickness is severe, then you kind of keep a track of who would have been in that line and you watch who gets through first. And if it's a person in the other line, you feel depressed, you're lost. And then there's the payment system. These days, I just have to wave my card. Magic whoosh, bills paid for my account. But sometimes they don't have that. Can you put your card in here? And ask for a PIN code. And after 20 seconds of waiting, I'm thinking, what is wrong with this place? I want to get out of here as quickly as possible. Today, I want to ask you to consider the possibility that the way to make every second count is not necessarily by moving as quickly as possible. The story is told of a guy who came home from work every day bringing with him his briefcase. And his son notices this day after day. So finally his son says to his dad, Dad, how come you bring your briefcase home every day? And the dad says, well, son, it's because I can't get all my work done during the day at the office. His son replied, well, Dad, can't they put you in a slower group? <laughs> this day, Easter day, I want to make a radical suggestion for us. Let's step back to a slower group. And I say it because of one principle captured in a great slogan kind of saying, which I heard uh, heard a number of times, heard it up at Katoomba Convention Conference once, though I first heard it many years ago from a message of a pastor friend, John Ortberg, who himself said he picked it up from James Dobson. Whatever its origin, here it is. It all goes back in the box. Three women in the first century knew this principle. In that reading from the final chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 16, which Jane brought to us, you can find it in the Pew Bibles if you'd like to follow on page 853. We read, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. These women had been with Jesus throughout his ministry. They used to provide for him when he was in Galilee. They looked after his needs. A few days earlier, they had stood in front of Jesus, calling out his name as he died before them. The excruciatingly painful death of a Roman crucifixion. They stood there to be the final voices he heard before his death there to prepare his body for burial, there to clean the blood from his beard, to wipe the crimson from his legs, to close his eyes, to touch his face. 
On the Friday, they were the last to leave Calvary. On the Sunday, they are the first to arrive at the grave. Early that Sunday morning, they have a somber task. The morning promises only one encounter, an encounter with a corpse. Remember, these two Marys and Salome, they don't know this is the first Easter. They are not hoping the tomb will be vacant. They are not discussing what their response will be when they see Jesus. They have no, absolutely no idea that the grave is empty. There was a, a time when they dared to dream such dreams, but not now. It is too late for the incredible. The feet that walked on water had been pierced. The hands that healed lepers had been stilled. Noble aspirations had been spiked into Friday's cross. These three women come to put warm oils on a cold body and bid farewell to one man who gave reason to their hopes. You see, they knew the principle. It all goes back in the box. Over the years with our family, we have played that game, Monopoly. Some years ago, we had quite a monster contest. Four players, two adults, two children. Gradually, it all went my way. I accumulated, swapped, saved, purchased, then pinned down two downcast children into a corner, in debt, all the way up to their tiny, now tear-filled eyeballs. When I bought them out, the tears were eased as each child joined their parents' team, boys versus girls, and the action really heated up. The tense dice rolls that followed, the swings in the game, Mayfair, Park Lane, and the elation that my son had as we won. The glory of victory, the joys of the spoils, the glee, the gloating, I mean, the, the, the great lump in my throat as we looked at the sad couple before us. And then the one final lesson. His mother said, now it all goes back in the box. All the houses, the hotels, the properties, the utilities, railroads, all of that wonderful money, it all goes back in the box. My son didn't want it to go back in the box. I wasn't so keen on Why not a memorial for the holiday? When she said it all goes back in the box, it was kind of her way of saying to him, none of it is really yours. You do not own any of it. You just used it for a little while, and now it all goes back in the box. And next time, it will go to somebody else. That's the way the game works. The three women knew this principle. They knew that Jesus had died. They had seen him crucified and watched him laid dead in the tomb. Life goes back in the box. 
That is why they were going to the tomb. While they are on their way, a need dawns upon them. Who will roll the stone away? In their grief-stricken state, they have forgotten to think about that problem. Mark tells us it's a huge, massive stone. They couldn't just push it out of the way themselves. But when they arrive, they look up and realise they've been fretting needlessly. The stone has been removed already. But if that was a surprise, it is nothing compared to what then followed. What happened next blew the box principal into smithereens and left them moving as quickly as possible away from the tomb. Verse 5 of Mark 16, we read, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Note what questions are left unanswered by, by the, the author Mark here. The prime questions of our modern scientific era are omitted. When did he rise? By what means? In what form? By what evidence may we be sure? The resurrection is something that is off the map of what we can know through our primitive historical and scientific methods. It is beyond the box. And note that Mark does not present the empty tomb as proof of the resurrection. He doesn't argue that because the grave is empty, Jesus must be resurrected. Simply, Jesus has been resurrected. Therefore, he is not here. Jesus has promised that God will raise him from the dead, and the angel announces that God has done so. And Mark then closes his account with three spin-offs from this historical reality. First, turn up the volume. Second, a word on failure. And third, he presents a choice of endings. Firstly, turn up the volume, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Throughout the entire book of the Gospel of Mark, there has been an emphasis on hushing up the identity of who Jesus is. Don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. But the cross and resurrection mark this massive turning point. There is now no need for silence or secrets anymore. For the very first time in the book, Jesus' followers are told to tell something about him, to turn the volume up loud, and they have been doing it ever since. The communist lecturer paused before summing up. His large audience listened fearfully. Therefore, he said, there is no God. Jesus Christ never existed. There is no such thing as a Holy Spirit. The church is an oppressive institution, and anyway, it is out of date. The future belongs to the state and the state is in the hands of the party. He was about to sit down when an old priest near the front stood up 
May I say two words, he said. In our language, English, it's three, but there, in Russian, he was speaking, it's two. The lecturer disdainfully gave him permission. He turned, looked out over the crowd, and shouted, Christ is risen! Back came the roar of the people. He is risen indeed. They've been saying it every Easter for more than a thousand years. Why should they stop now? They weren't just whistling in the dark. The gospel message of Easter is the complete answer to tyranny, political and spiritual. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only is it the answer to fear, the resurrection also declares failure is not fine. Peter was singled out from all the disciples. Peter who had dismally failed Jesus. Peter who epitomises every single human being's failure, our weakness and sin. And here the women are told, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Yes, Peter, for he is risen. And a risen Jesus does not give up on failed Peters. A lot of people think that Christian faith is kind of a matter of covering up your fears, pretending that you haven't really been a failure, entering the world of make-believe, kind of like a child pulling the bedclothes over his head, creating a cosy, warm little world from which reality is excluded. But that is the exact opposite of the truth. Resurrection is about facing fears and discovering hope. Easter is about looking failure in the face and discovering forgiveness and new possibilities. See what the empty tomb says? Look at your worst failures. Don't rush by them, which is so often a result. Or is it the reason for all our hurrying? And know that the Jesus who meets you there is the Jesus who will not scowl and make you feel worse than before. He is the one who will embrace you and love you and give you a new start. And so a third implication. Mark leaves us with a choice of endings. The final verse, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's the end of this gospel. For many, it is too abrupt and unsatisfactory ending. Some people even try to round it out. We even see here an alternative that some manuscripts had in the Bible. But it's clearly not part of the original. You see, this ending is puzzling. It's an empty tomb, a mysterious young man saying that Jesus had been raised but offering no proof, no meetings with Jesus, no words of Jesus, and some women who were too scared or was it too overcome with awe to say anything. That's it. You expect something good is going to happen when the women find their large stone rolled away, but instead the angel announcing, Surprise! Here he is! He says, he is not here. 
The women's response leaves questions. It's all so open-ended. The angel doesn't sort of track them down to reassure them, assure them, spur them on like some personal trainer for resurrection newcomers. Come on, girls. Pull yourselves together. Go for it. You can get on. You can complete the task. In Mark, we just have, for they were afraid. Some ending. In fact, it's not really an ending. It's more a choice of endings. For the resurrection is all about beginning, about movement, about life. Faith rests on the proclamation of the resurrection and going to see him. He is risen. He is not here. Go. Tell. He has gone ahead of you. There you will see him. Jesus' resurrection changes the, the whole dynamics of the game. The game we all play. The game of life. For now, there, were, there are two endings. The first ending, back in the box. The comedian Jerry Seinfeld put it this way, to me, if life boils down to one significant thing, it's movement. To live is to keep moving. Unfortunately, this means that for the rest of our lives, we're going to be looking for boxes. When you're moving, your whole world is boxes. That's all you think about. Boxes? Where are their boxes? You just wander down the street, going in and out of stores. Are there boxes here? Have you seen any boxes? That's all you can think about. Can't even talk to people. You can't concentrate. Will you shut up? I'm looking for boxes. It becomes quite obsessive. You could be at a funeral. Everyone's mourning, crying around you. You're looking at the casket. That's a nice box. Does anybody know where that guy got that box? When he's done with it, do you think I could get that? It's got some nice handles on it. My stereo would fit right in there. I mean, that's what death is, really. It's the last big move of your life. So, friends, when you play the game this way, don't forget this one lesson. When the game comes to an end, and the game always comes to an end, the stuff goes, all goes back in the box. Many of us are shrewd, we play the game well, better than others, but we forget one thing. The game was going to end. The game will always end, sooner or later, it all goes back in the box. The businessman is jogging and feels a sudden pain in his chest, and in an instant, it all goes back in the box. The teenager is driving in a car, somebody misses a stop sign, in an instant, it all goes back in the box. The doctor says it's malignant, and next moment you're in a hospital bed. In an instant, it all goes back in the box. House, car, title, boat, clothes, toys, they all go back in the box. In the long run, even your body goes in the box. But there is a second ending possibility. Faith rests on the proclamation of the resurrection and going to see him. Movement beyond the box. In the whole of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been on the move and nothing changes after his resurrection. He is not in the tomb for the women to cling to and embrace the very ending of Mark tells us that those who follow him must still live with ambiguity. But if you step out in faith, 
to follow Jesus who has gone ahead, then you have to ask yourself, Jesus says, what is it that matters? What is it that is worth giving your life for? What will make every second count? The Jesus who said in Galilee, follow me. Who also said, what good is it, is it for someone to gain the whole world yet for forfeit his soul? It's a faith, a belief in the kingdom of God, which goes beyond the box. Mark's abrupt ending here calls us into the story, not simply to inquire from a distance, was it real, but is it real? And that means more than just hurrying by once a year at Easter time to see if the tomb is empty. Slow down. Look at Jesus. It means going to look for Jesus who has gone ahead. How do you look? I close with an email which I received some time ago. It told of one woman's story, her own following of Jesus. The lady's name is Dr. Helen Rosevier. She was from Ireland. She'd been a medical missionary in the Congo at the time. She came to Australia many years ago. I did hear her speak, have heard this testimony in her own rich Irish accent. It begins, and I note this, it begins with ambiguity and the pain of life. She said, one night, I have worked hard to help a mother in the labor war, but in spite of all that we could do, she died leaving us with a tiny, premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have difficulty keeping the baby alive. We had no incubator, we had no electricity to run an incubator, and no special feeding facilities. Although we lived on the equator, nights were often chilly with treacherous drafts. A student midwife went for the case we had for such babies and for the cotton wool that the baby could be wrapped in. Another went to stoke up the fire and fill a hot water bottle. She came back shortly in distress to tell me that in filling the bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in tropical climates. And it is our last hot water bottle, she explained. As in the West, it's no good crying over spilled milk. So in Central Africa, it might be considered no good crying over a burst water bottle. They do not grow on trees. There are no chemists down forest pathways. All right, I said, put the baby as near the fire as you safely can. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from drafts. Your job is to keep the baby warm. The following noon, as I did most days, Helen said, I went to have prayers with many of the orphanage children who chose to gather with me. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about and told them about the tiny baby. I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the hot water bottle. The baby could so easily die that it got chilled. I also told them about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. During the prayer time, one ten-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed with the unusual blunt consciousness, blunt consciousness of our African children. Please, God, she prayed, send us a water bottle. 
It'll be no good tomorrow, God. The baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. While I gasped inwardly at the audacity of the prayer, she added by way of corollary, and while you're about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know you really love her? As so often with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say, Amen? I just did not believe that God could do this. Oh, yes, I knew that he can do everything. The Bible says so, but there are limits, aren't there? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending a parcel from the homeland. I had been in Africa for almost four years at that time, and I had never, ever received a parcel from home. Anyway, if anyone ever did send a parcel, who would put in a hot water bottle? I lived on the equator. Halfway through the afternoon, while I was teaching in the nurses' training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time that I reached home, the car had gone. But there on the veranda was a large 22-pound box. I felt tears pricking my eyes. I could not open the box alone, so I sent for the orphanage children. Together we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it unduly. Excitement was mounting. Some 30 or 40 pairs of eyes were focused on the large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly coloured knitted jerseys. Eyes sparkled as I gave them out. And then there were the knitted bandages for the leprosy patients, and the children began to look a little bored. Next came a box of mixed raisins, sultanas. That would make a nice bunch of buns for the weekend, I thought. As I put my hand in again, I felt the, could it really be? I grasped it and pulled it out. Yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward crying out, If God has sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out the small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She had never doubted. Looking up at me, she asked, Can I go over with you, Mummy? Give this dolly to that little girl so she'll know that Jesus really loves her. That box had been on the way for five whole months, packed up by my former Sunday school class, said Helen, whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. One of the girls that put in a dolly for an African child five months earlier in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old to bring it that afternoon. How do you look for Jesus? Here is one faithful, godly woman, Helen Rosevear, now gone to glory, but who found that life beyond the box is indeed full of surprises. When you follow the Jesus who said in Mark 10, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So there is a choice of endings to make every second count. Life is quick 
Are you going to spend your life hurrying? Just remember, it all goes back in the box. If you take the word of promise, he is risen. He is not here. And you go ahead to meet him. To see what comes out of the box. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would search our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Grant us grace to receive that which you are speaking to us this day. Where we struggle with faith, where we struggle with wondering what is going on, open the eyes of our heart. Help us to see the risen Jesus. We call to you by faith, O Lord. We pray that you would make us a people ready for him, the King of Kings, whose return we wait. In Jesus' name. Amen.